Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here, Stand of Reason, and I'm glad you're with me today. And I hope to see a whole bunch of you in about 10 days from my broadcast in Minneapolis. Uh, and this is the biggest church that we are in for reality. It's also the biggest church in Minnesota, the entire state. Grace Church Eden Prairie, and right now we have 3,334 people signed up for that wonderful conference. Now, just to give you a perspective, last year at this time, 10 days out, we had about 3,000, and we ended up with 3,800. All right? Now we have 3,334, and we're going to blow right through 4,000. That's what it looks like to me. That's my guesstimation. So if you have not signed up yet for Minnesota Reality, November 10th and 11th, I just encourage you to do it now. Realityapologetics.com will get you there and all the details. Uh, I think last year a lot of folks just waited to the last minute, last five or six days, and then kaboom, all rushed in. It's okay with me. I'm just glad to be able to see you there and hope you can get in and we don't close down because I don't think it can hold more than 4,000. By the way, 4,000 divided by 10 breakouts. That requires 10 rooms that hold around 400 per, which is, like, larger than the average church in this country. We have 10 churches. Anyway, Eden Prairie, Grace Church Eden Prairie is big. Great team there. Always love working with them. And it's an amazing event, so I hope to see you there. I got some friends in Wisconsin that are think are still thinking about it. I hope they're signed up. I uh, don't want to forget to let you know that this weekend I will also be back in the Seattle area in Bothell, Washington, B-O-T-H-E-L-L. That's north of Seattle proper. I'll be Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. That's Friday night, all day Saturday, and the Sunday morning services. The event is called Thinking About Faith Apologetics Conference there in Bothell. And uh, let's see, I guess if you go to str.org slash events, you can get all the other information there. Thinking about Faith Apologetics Conference in Bother, Washington, Friday through Sunday. That's this weekend. And the following weekend, Minneapolis in uh, Minnesota cold. Getting colder there now. I guess they just said their first uh, snowfall. All right. We'll be dressed for it. I had a wonderful time last weekend at a Lutheran conference, and I don't usually attend Lutheran conferences because I'm not Lutheran, but I had a great time. Nonetheless, I was invited as a special guest at the 1517 conference. They have it once a year, and from my understanding, this one, I'd say they had about 500 conferees, and it was sold out like within two weeks after they opened up signups. <laughs> Last year, they have two of these a year, one in Southern Cal, San Diego, in this case, another one in um, Arkansas. And uh, I was invited by a good friend and Stand a Reason partner to be part of this event. Actually, I was invited just to tag along and see what's going on. Been invited in the past, but we've always had conflict of dates. There was almost, in the last few years, it's just been... Uh, reality at the same time. But this time I got away, no conflict, and I was uh, the guest of my friend and of uh, the 1517 conference, and the focus was on 
C.S. Lewis, and I was able to attend all the plenary sessions, of course, and then the breakouts, all on Lewis, all on different aspects of Lewis's writing and personality or efforts or apologetics or a way of looking at things. It was very, very sweet, and the people were fantastic. Now, they did have a podcast on Saturday, and I'm sorry, make that on Thursday. I got my dates all mixed up because this was Thursday through Saturday morning, and it and, and so it was pushed early, so now I'm mixed up. But Thursday morning, midday, actually, they had a podcast, so my wife and I, Steve, so we drove down, got there in time for the Thursday podcast, with a, which they asked if I would participate in, the 1517 podcast. And when they announced, when they introduced me on the panel, <laughs> there were some people who told me that they'd heard me speak 15 years ago, and they didn't even recognize me sitting up at the panel, thanks so much. But when they heard my voice and then my name was uh, announced, they were glad to see me. <laughs> All right. And also was so well received there. I, I thought I'd know like four people there. And it turned out there was a whole bunch of some people I knew and, and a whole bunch that, that knew of me and stand a reason I was so nicely received. It was so um, so great to see how much stand a reason had kind of become known among this particular group, and people were really nice. So I had a great time, and it was really super listening to the teaching uh, that had to do with C.S. Lewis. Now, I've just finished—last um, I, I, year, I guess now, I finished—I reread the Rings trilogy. I read a Tolkien biography, which included a lot about Lewis, of course, and then a Lewis biography, which included a lot about Tolkien, of course, and uh, I also read uh, The Horse and the Boy. Um, so I just kind of have this all in my mind. And so when I was asked the the question in the panel about the way C.S. Lewis has contributed to apologetics, so one of the things that I mentioned, and this is mere Christianity, and I was quite reflective on this because I'd done a lot of thinking about this when I wrote The Story of Reality, which in my way was a kind of answer to the need that mere Christianity fulfilled in its culture in its day. Early 50s is when it was published, but it was part of a series of broadcasts in the mid-1940s. Mid, uh, uh, because nowadays, a lot of people tell me they can't read Lewis because he's too difficult, which is not a good sign for the culture. I think he's among the most accessible readers. But I in writing the book that I write that offered, I almost said mere Christianity, and kind of responding to the mere Christianity need now in uh, writing the story of reality, I uh, uh, I, I, I kind of wanted to capture a little bit of the feel and the layout and the approach of Lewis in mere Christianity. So I thought a lot about that book and what made it appealing and how it was organized and and uh, how the wording that was used, <clears throat> because I think that was all part of the appeal. If you look at Amazon, under the category of apologetics, mere Christianity is like eternally number one. <laughs> 
the number one bestseller. Every once in a while, it'll bump out of first place into second or maybe third for a couple of days while somebody makes a new contribution that has a lot of PR. And then Lewis moves to the top, which is fine. I'm glad he's there. I'm glad people are reading him because he's simply amazing. I've sometimes thought, I mean, he's a an alien from another planet. But the appeal for me of mere Christianity was in part the ability to communicate basic concepts about classical Christianity in non-religious terminology, theologically sound, but not complex or complicated. He threw the ball so people could catch it. He was a popularizer in a certain sense without sacrificing the substance. He was a translator. This is kind of the way we view ourselves at Stand to Reason, as translators. We take the hard stuff, the tough stuff, the solid stuff, the important stuff that a lot of people aren't going to pursue on their own just because sometimes it's uh, not so accessible in the way the material is given by a lot of the smart folk. Well, we hang out with them, and we rub shoulders with them, and some of their smarts rubs off on us, and then we try to throw the ball so people could catch it. And uh, I think we're pretty successful at that. But that was something that Lewis did as well. And I, I noticed not only is he, especially when you read the first part of Mere Christianity, which, by the way, this tome, this particular book, appeared in three different books originally. The first one was called The Case for Christianity, and that was the, the beginning portion of what is now Mere Christianity. And, uh, <clears throat> and he was making the case for the reasonableness of Christianity, the God of Christianity, uh, by starting with discussion on morality. So there's a kind of a version of the moral argument for God that Lewis makes early on, but nobody th thinks he's making an argument like that, because he's not starting out philosophical. He's starting out by making an observation about the way people talk. Now, I have discussed this notion um, in the past, something that I, I actually learned more directly from Francis Schaeffer, but this notion that every human being has built inside of them a, a, a reservoir of knowledge or understanding, let's just call it common sense intuitions about the world, not just what they see, but what's been built in there. Actually, Romans 1 talks about both of those things. What they see tells them about God, but God also made it evident within them. So there's an internal and external witness to the reality of God. And and the, the way this came together for me with Francis Schaeffer was that, <clears throat> that we're all made in the image of God, as a matter of fact. And we have to live in the world that God made. There's the internal and the external. And so our engagement with the world um, is based on understandings that we have inside that are not learned. They're basic. They're, they're uh, fundamental. They're intuitions. They're, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Primitives that allow us to function in this world. And one of those things has to do with morality, and this is what Francis Schaeffer called moral motions. Now, Lewis tried to give content to those moral motions in a different book, 
it's in the appendix of the abolition of man. Here is the substance of the content. But the more formal principle is just that we characteristically think and act in using moral categories. Why do we do that? Because we are moral beings, as Schaefer's understanding. And and what I've taught before, coming from Schaefer, is we, if we keep our ears open and our eyes open, we can trade on those things. We can listen to the way people talk, and when, in a certain sense, the image of God in man comes out of their mouths, especially in a way that is inconsistent with the worldview they claim for themselves and may think is true, then we can ask them questions about that, and in in a subtle way, um, get them thinking about ultimate issues. And I say subtle because Lewis talked about um, the watchful dragons <laughs> and kind of sneaking around those watch, watchful dragons using different literary devices like story, which he did in Chronicles of Narnia, for example. And so you can read Chronicles of Narnia in a completely innocent way without having any understanding of Lewis's own theology, but built into these chronicles, of course, for those who've been around a while, are these theological notions that are introduced to the reader in story form. And so Aslan, of course, is the Christ figure. And when you read the stories and later learn about Christianity, hopefully there's this connection. Or if you've heard about Christianity but aren't a Christian, you begin to understand Christianity in a deeper sense because the story helps, gives you a guided theological tour using your imagination, so to speak. And uh, that's how Lewis is able to get around the watchful dragons. And so what he's doing here in Mere Christianity and the opening lines have to do with paying attention to the way people talk and what their language and their impulse, uh, their moral impulses, um, I would say their moral intuitions expressed in language, um, tell us about the nature of the world. It's a clue to the nature of the world and talk about these things in Story of Reality, I kind of trade on these same notions, because I learned this technique from Lewis. <clears throat> we hitchhike on their language and their words and their concepts that they're expressing that reveal deep truths about reality that they understand, even though they don't realize they're making philosophically sound statements or assessments of the world. And then our goal is to kind of begin to hitch up those assessments with the worldview that fits the assessments and the way the world actually is. We help them connect the dots, which is precisely what Lewis does in Mere Christianity, at least the opening pages. So, I, I mean, if, if I were recommending, and I have, uh, books on apologetics, or just understanding Christianity, Lewis's Mere Christianity is the place to start. Or if you think he's tough, hard to read, then start with the story of reality. But um, both are meant to explain the the Christian worldview, understanding of reality, um, in theologically accurate ways that are accessible to the rank and file, and don't uh, 
um, make you feel preached at. Um, you can give either book, Mere Christianity or Story of Reality, and I'm not equating the two. I'm no Lewis. Story of Reality is no Mere Christianity, but they are kin in a certain way on purpose, and you can give either book to anyone, any non-Christian, without being embarrassed. There's no cringe moments there for them, and it will help them to understand. And what is built in to both books, and here I just took this cue from Lewis when I did my own work, are what I call soft apologetics. There's this subtle way of saying, gee, isn't this interesting? Isn't this odd? Look at the way we talk about this. What does that reveal about our understanding about the nature of the world? Hmm. Oh, that reveals this, huh? How do we make sense of that in light of our worldview? Gee, I wonder, oh, you have this objection to my point. You kind of see where I'm going. Well, let me pause for a moment. Let me anticipate and that objection by dealing with it. And so here's my response to what I think you're thinking, contrary to my view. And on he goes. And then he gets back into his material. Soft apologetics. So I learned that from Lewis. And uh, and and I, I learned about the watchful dragons. Of course, we know about them, but how he maneuvers around them carefully not to alert them as to what he's doing. This is something that really is part of the tactical game plan in tactics and also street smarts. It's a, now a different figure here. Lieutenant Colombo scratching his head, muttering to himself, coming in under the radar, acting like, no, he doesn't really realize the significance of the questions he's asking, and just poking around, oh, yeah, of course, and something else about this thing bothers me, you know, and on he goes. Being alert to the watchful dragons, not to wake them up, but to get past them and accomplish his job. Lewis is a master at that, as was Columbo, and uh, that's something we can learn from both of them, and it was great to be able to um, be with kindred spirits uh, my Lutheran brethren, um, for this weekend, attending these events and talking. Boy, they sure had a good time. They were really wonderful together. And there were a few people there that I did know, and one of them was John Warwick Montgomery. Now, this is a name you may not know, and that's unfortunate. Uh, he did quite a bit of writing in, I would say, the 70s, 60s, 70s, some in the 80s. And I still have his book, Suicide of Christian Theology. Uh, is there a meaning to history? I think that's the name of it. Um, the Law Above the Law, and uh, all of these wonderful works that helped me as a new Christian to get build my foundation. And some of you might remember a piece I wrote about 13 or 14 years ago about the third column. And I was just reflecting on a dynamic that I see, I've seen historically in my own lifetime as a Christian, about how the, uh, in a certain sense, what well, the apologetics project has unfolded um, by the work of the Holy Spirit. So I'm kind of carried along with Standard Reason as part of a larger grassroots enterprise that actually had a foundation in what I call the, the, uh, the, the, the first. Um, column. And the first column, if you think of the column like a military column, the first column into battle, there were five players. 
when I was a new Christian. All right. One was Josh McDowell. He's still alive and working hard. Uh, one was Walter Martin. He's no longer alive. Died in his in the eighties while he was on his knees praying in the middle of the night. Amazingly, um, another one was Francis Schaeffer. Also passed away in the eighties, but I learned a lot from him and from his books. Met him as well um, at Labrie in nineteen seventy six. Norm Geisler. He's gone just more recently. That was the number. Number five of that first column, in the, I'm sorry, four, and the fifth one was John Warwick Montgomery. Now, I've got a, had a chance to teach for John 2002 in uh, Strasbourg, France, at a special program that he has there during the summer. Spent about a week or so there. And then in 2013 or so, again, and uh, I brought my wife this time, and we had a great time in Strasbourg for that week and uh, spent some time you know, rusticating, not rusticating, but relaxing in Europe afterwards. But a uh, uh, great program there in theology and apologetics that uh, that people attend. Um, but John, um, he was one of those first column people. And he's 92 years old now. Hadn't seen him uh, for a number of years. I think about four years ago or with the... Th- in 2017, the what 500-year anniversary of the Reformation, we uh, had him on the air, and I talked with him and interviewed him, and we had a great time. But um, it was just great to see him again this weekend. So we got to talk just a little bit, and he gave a nice presentation. Anyway, my weekend uh, with my Lutheran friends and cogitating on C.S. Lewis and all the wonderful things that he did. It's great. Made me want to go back and read a bunch more of his books, some that I've already read and others that I haven't yet read, which are a lot of them since he was so amazingly prolific. And uh, my wife and I just watched the BBC version of Shadowlands the last couple of nights, which is about his, principally about his relationship with uh, Joy Davidman and, uh, and his marriage to her, actually two marriages. One was civil, the other one uh, in the church as a sacrament. And the first one was just a, a certain kind of marriage conven- of convenience to allow her to stay in England. And the second one was the real McCoy, um, because they he, Lewis just fell completely in love with this woman. And then, of course, uh, this program kind of follows that, and then her subsequent death, and then the agony that he experienced losing this woman that he married late in life had only a handful of years with before she was gone, and then, what, three years later, he was gone as well. Anyway, touching, and very, um, what's the right word? Real. I mean, when you think about it, here's a guy who made incredible contributions, and we are still feasting at the fountain today. Yet, at the same time, he paid a heavy price emotional price in his personal life. Um, A bachelor most of his life, lost his mom when he was a kid. That really deeply influenced him, but was fine with being a bachelor. Um, And uh, his group of friends called the Inklings that were close to him, and that's what he needed, other men around him to be close with, to talk about things that interested them together, to, to critique each other, to 
laugh together, to drink and smoke together, and to, uh, you know, push each other around as is necessary. That was all part of his life. And then Joy came into his life, Joy Davidman, and then he, then their love affair began and ended relatively quickly, robbed then, <clears throat> or so he thought. And so, so here's a man who led a very productive life, but had, like we do, uh, incredible pain. Incredible pain. And he wrote about it, a grief observed, for example, towards the end of his life, or letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, which these figure in also to his confusion, his disappointment, his frustration, his anguish at the end of his life. So he's a great mentor for all of us, and um, and I've benefited tremendously from him. Let's take a break, and then I'll come back uh, to our calls here on Stand to Reason. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. I attended Andy Stanley's Unconditional Conference, an event intended to train the church how to minister to LGBTQ youth. Find out my three main concerns with this conference in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schliemann. Look for it on Spotify, iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking, and we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic, and subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. Time to get to the calls, and and here we have Jacob in Orlando, Florida. And Jacob, you called in early. 
I did. I did. I was. I was really looking forward to talking to you today. So, so you you wanted to get first in the queue. Well, it turns out we're just we're off schedule today. So I'm doing the three o'clock or what for me is normally the four o'clock show at three, and then the and then the five o'clock show at four. Basically, allows me to get out an hour early. Uh, we're going to go okay. see Melinda Penner later this evening. So we just got out. We're moving everything earlier here today on. Actually, it's Melinda Penner's birthday today, October 31st, a.k.a. Reformation Day. Okay, so um, anyway, so you just happen to call in, and we have another caller right now, too, on the advance hour, and they're getting in right away. So good for you, Jacob. Great. Thank you so much, Craig. You're welcome. Um, first, first of all, I want to say thank you so much for what you're doing uh, with Stand to Reason. Hmm. I actually uh, found I found you through uh, Frank Turek's podcast, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Uh-huh. And then um, through that, I started listening to some of the regular podcasts that you have. And then with that, it led me to buy tactics. And so I've been very much so enjoying reading that um, in between the other books that I'm doing for school. I'm, I'm going to a school called Trivium. It's like a seminary program. Uh-huh. Oh, uh, great. So anyways, uh, wait, yeah. I'm glad to hear that. You know, there's another book that follows tactics called Street Smarts. Just saying. Uh huh. Okay. I'm going to buy that next. Trust me. I there's like okay. So Greg, I spent like 17 years of my life playing video games, and then I came to Christ, and then the Holy Spirit convicted me about playing video games, huh. and so I like traded reading for video games, and so wow. Now I like I, I have a newfound love for reading. So like everything happened in the right time, but I. I want to hone in my skill of reading too to make sure I'm really absorbing yes. you know, what I have well, going on. Oh, that is very cool. I'm just finishing myself reading a biography of uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin, and he said, Time lost is never found again. Mm. Isn't that heavy? I mean, that's kind of sobering in light of what you just said. But I'm glad now you're not losing time like you right. did before. So that's good for you. And uh, I'm proud of you. Good for you, Jacob. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, uh, I came to Christ December of, or end of November of 2019, but it took me probably about two years before I started taking my walk with Jesus serious, you know, uh-huh. I was kind of being one of those hypocritical Christians, you know? Yeah. Um, but anyways, um, how can so, I help? Yeah. So I, I have just two brief questions for you that I think you can uh, knock out of the park. Um, <laughs> but I just, I just would like your perspective on it. Cause sure. to be honest, I've been listening to you for the past couple months and I, I feel like you've kind of been a, a mentor to uh. me in a sense. So I, I really appreciate that. And you said something, because I've been listening to a lot of your podcasts, because I drive quite a bit for work. Um, but you said, you mentioned about how, like, the importance it is for us to honor God. And that's, that's really stuck with me to, like, really remind me throughout the day, are the decisions that I'm making mm-hmm. um, going in that direction? And then also, there was a podcast that you were talking about, and you you mentioned like when when it's our time to go to be with God, like in heaven, and he says, "Well done, good and faithful servant." That's like that's really helped me in the past couple months. Doing mm-hmm. like almost has shifted my perspective because 
at my church, uh, my pastor about a year ago gave me the opportunity to uh, lead the evangelism ministry. Mm-hmm. So I got married September 30th, just this past September 30th. So there's been a lot of things going on. So there's there's still a lot that's um, going into that. But it just kind of ties into my question a little bit. Too. Okay. So um, I'm I'm just I'm just curious because my uh, my pastor about two years ago had come in contact with this lady. She's very nice. Um, and about a year ago, my pastor gave a couple of us the opportunity to preach at my church, right? And mm-hmm. so that was great. We preached on Philippians. And so this, this lady, Rose, was a part of it, too. Um, and so I've, I've gotten, you know, of course, like, she's, she's been involved with a lot of things. And so my pastor wants to send her to plant a church, right? Wait, say it again. And, your your pastor wants to for you to plant a church? No, he uh, he wants to send this lady. Oh, I see. Okay. To, yeah. Okay. And so uh, I'm trying to um, talk a little, say a lot here because I I like to talk a lot. But anyways, um, so I guess my question to you, Greg, is that I've I've had this experience with this lady preaching at my church, right, and just getting to know her in this sense and seeing, you know, this side of her preaching or whatever, you know, I have I have my own feelings about that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I had that experience, and then I, I have, I've heard other Reformed, um, I guess, explanations on, say, women in ministry or, like, women in a, in a lead pastoral role, uh-huh. right? Um and then and then I had a conversation with my pastor about it because at this point in time it was I was kind of um, I was thinking about it quite a bit because now it's kind of been in the conversation two years now like oh she's going to go plant the church and um, I guess in some instances in some instances sorry I got Invisalign today so I'm reworking my talking but um, I have felt that this isn't necessarily so to speak her calling. Okay, mm. um, so the thing is, is I I brought this to my pastor because I I can honestly say I I haven't been the type that's like oh women women can't be in ministry because of blah 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 right not not really gung ho about it like I've heard other people before but in some instances too I'm not super I guess keen to the idea of I guess and I and I'm and I'm saying this in an instance like from my own personal experience with this lady, right? Imagining her being the lead pastor of this plant church for our church, okay? Yeah. Uh, so I had a conversation with my pastor about it, because I guess it was like ruffling my feathers a little bit. I don't know the best way to put it, but right, right. It, it, was, it wasn't bothering me, but I wanted clarification, okay? And obviously he's very for, uh, you know, this lady. Well, he's sending her out to be a pastor of another church, so he must be in right. favor of women being lead pastors. I think it's pretty straightforward, right? Yes, and so she's going through the process of being ordained right now, and we're we're a part of the four C's, our congregation. Um, Wait, can you, wait, tell me what that means. It, I believe it's like Christian, like conservative Christian congregational something. I always forget. Okay, that's, that's the denomination that you're in? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so um, you want to know what I think about a, a woman being ordained as a head pastor? Is that right? 
Uh, I do because okay. my my pastor, real quick, sorry, <laughs> my pastor was giving me explanations about like Deborah in the Old Testament and about the other ladies like teaching in the New Testament. I guess like with Paul and whatnot. Um, so I guess I would I would like some help reconciling. That. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you my point of view on this, and there are a variety of different views on this, and <clears throat> I don't think we should draw our conclusions about women in leadership based on maybe some um, inappropriate leadership we've seen in other women in certain circumstances, because the same could be said about men. Um, the, the It ultimately comes down to a scriptural point. Now, going to Deborah in the Old Testament I don't think is going to help, because the question here is not whether the Jews had, under certain circumstances— legitimate female leadership. Actually, she was a judge in the Old Testament, all right? The question is whether what the New Testament teaches about leadership in the Church, and even about how ministry is accomplished in the Church. That is the question, okay? Right. Now, uh, some—I'll I'll give you um, the, pa- the, the chapter of the pastor— I'm I'm stumbling here just because I'm I'm trying to think about how best to organize this material here without getting into too much detail. There's a there, in First Timothy chapter two. There's a passage that bothers a lot of people, right? And, uh, and that passage seems to suggest that no wim- woman should be allowed to teach any man in church. Okay, that's the quick summary of it. I think that's a misunderstanding of the teaching of that passage. I think that passage is not talking about men and women in the Church, but the particular wording of the passage is probably best understood to be the, the, the teaching authority in the family between a husband and a wife, because the word for man and the word for husband are the same words. You determine how to translate it based on the, the context, and the same thing with, with woman and wife same words, aner and gune, okay? Um, But but in this particular case, um, this woman is being groomed to be a head pastor, all right? I actually think that chapter 3 of 1 Timothy is the chapter that speaks to that particular concern. And here's what, uh, what Paul says there. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to be to the office of an overseer, that would be the same as an elder, okay? Um, It is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer or elder then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, etc. And it goes on to describe qualifications that are necessary but it mentions being a husband and a man who manages his household well. In other words, it seems to restrict eldership to men in the church. And this is a pa- this follows the pattern, frankly, of the synagogue also of the Jews that the leaders of the church are men. Now, it doesn't say a woman can't be a pastor if that means in some pastoral role. I mean, this is just language we use of people. You know, you could say, okay, well, 
she's a teacher in the church or she's a pastor in the church. Well, you, different terminology uh, can be used to describe the the, the role. <clears throat> One has to resolve their understanding of chapter 2 here in First Timothy to know if there's a woman in the church that's teaching, what is the extent of allowable audience for her? And uh, that's one issue. But um, what Paul is talking about in First Timothy chapter 3 is leadership, that is, ultimate leadership of the church, the elders. And in the New Testament pattern, it was the elders that were the leaders, not one person, but a group of people. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and it, uh, it seems to me if a woman is going to be the head pastor of a church, she is functioning as an elder. And right. even now with 501c3s, you have to have a, a board, so to speak, and usually that's called an elder board, or some traditions might call it deacons. These are the people who lead the church, make the decisions for the church. Guess who's on that? The head pastor is one of those people. And sometimes the head pastor runs the whole thing. The head pastor runs the deacon board or elder board, whatever. I actually think that's a mistake, because then you have no checks and balances really against the head pastor if he's over those things. At Stand to Reason, we have a governing board. I am the president of Stand to Reason, and I am also on the board. But I have only one vote with another five board members. So there's what? I think there's six of us total. I just get one vote. I'm not running it, and I don't, I'm not the chairman of the board. The chairman is a is a administrative function. It doesn't give any more authority just because you're the chairman of the board, at least not in our model. So what this amounts to then is that if a, a person is what's called the head pastor of a church, they are a ruling elder by definition, even though there are other elders that might be ruling with him. And elders are supposed to be men, in my understanding of 1 Timothy chapter 3, which means a woman should not be the head pastor of a church. That is, a functional elder of the church, or on the elder board, but rather should they should all be men. Now, there can be other people who work under there. You can call them female pastors of the children's ministry or pastor of hospitality or pastor of, you know, women's ministries. You can, you can call them whatever you want. Right. The key is whether how they are functioning in the church. And mm. I think a head pastor functions without question, it seems to me, as an elder. That's why they're called head pastor, because mm. they're the head. <laughs> they're in charge. That means right. they're functioning as an elder, and it seems that Paul restricts that to um, to men here in First Timothy three. So if if I were to go to my pastor who was grooming a female to be a head pastor of a church plant, I would mm-hmm. ask, what do you do with First Timothy three? It's not enough to say, well, Deborah was a judge, because we're not talking about judges or the period of the judges, or we're not talking about that. We're not denying that women can have significant roles in the community. We're asking whether a woman, according to Paul in New Testament theology, is allowed to be a functional elder at the church. And it doesn't look to me like 1 Timothy 3 allows that. Now, you can read it yourself, 
Okay, it's chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And there's a number of qualifications that are given there. Even men may not satisfy all the qualifications. And so there's a number of things that are important there. Not a new convert, for example, so he doesn't become conceited. One that manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the Church of God? That's verse 5. So notice there is a parallel. The headship of the household is the man who needs to exercise that well before he can think about taking the headship of a church. So that's the that would be my answer to that concern. Woman a, being a lead pastor. I appreciate that. Um, that's very helpful, and I, I really like how you talked about First Timothy three because what I've heard so much is you know First Timothy two, and you know that that being the I guess the core of the explanation behind things. Um, I guess my my personal conviction after having that conversation with my pastor was um, that, like, okay, you know, if God wants to use whoever He wants to use, why why should I say something? Like, why, why should I impose my thoughts, you know, on maybe who God is trying to use? But ultimately, like, I love how you do so much, is going back to Scripture to clear things up. Yes, uh-huh. And whether whether you confront your pastor on this is a is a is a different issue entirely. Um uh-huh. Jacob, it I mean that's that's a prudential concern, okay? But uh, as to what is the proper circumstance, here's what you want to be compare, careful of. I know you might be saying, "Well, I see your point out of 1 Timothy 3, but who am I to say who God can use?" And my response is God is the one who gets to say who he uses, and he's already said it here in 1 Timothy 3, if my understanding is correct. Mm, what you, like don't, you don't want to do is say, well, that's what it says, but I, I really believe God is calling this woman, and who am I to disqualify her? Well, you're using a Scripture requirement. If it says, not a new convert here in verse 6, for elders, well, I don't know, who am I to say that a brand new Christian couldn't be used of God? I'll tell you, you're not anybody to say, but God is to say. <laughs> he says uh-huh. it right here. And That's really good. If you're That's not careful good. and you say, the who am I to say, if God's calling them or using them, that allows you to have a subjective reason for getting around virtually every objective requirement of Scripture. And remember, the objective requirements of leadership here are God's requirements, not ours. So he has spoken. We have it in First Timothy. We also have it in um, Titus chapter one, requirements for elders, and uh, those are those are critical to satisfy before a person even qualifies as elder material. And it seems to me one of those qualifications is that they be a male. I mean, a real male, not a male identity or anything like that. So um, this is really important. If we're going to have—by the way, even when your pastor refers back to Deborah, isn't he implicitly acknowledging that the Scripture is an appropriate guide to these decisions? Mm 
Well, here it is back here. Okay. Now, I think he's misapplying the concept with Deborah, especially when we're not talking about a judge over Israel under those circumstances back then, but the church here in pastoral elder roles of the church, which Paul speaks directly to here in 1 Timothy. So um, it's, you're going to the he's going to the wrong text. Here's a here. This is the text that he needs he needs to deal with. Now you might ask him. You might just say, Pastor, um, we had this earlier conversation. I'm curious. Do you think that a woman, being the head pastor of the church, this is the first question you have to ask. Uh huh. A woman being the head pastor of a church would be functioning as an elder. Ooh, that's good. Oh, or, that's or, good. or or is there going to be a group of elders over her that are ruling her, that she is subject to? Now, I suspect he's going to say, no, she's, she's the lead pastor, so uh-huh. that's not going to be anybody over her. She might be part of an elder board. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. Well, then the question becomes, what do you do with 1 Timothy chapter 3? And you need to be familiar with the passage. Read it over a couple of times and absorb it and think about it so you have it clear in your own mind. First Timothy 3, that seems to indicate, dictate, that an elder needs to be a man. And then see what he says. It doesn't have to be a challenge, like um, you're thumping him on the chest or something. Hey, pastor, look what Paul says. You're wrong. No, just ask him, what do you, what, what do you understand this to mean? Okay. And and see, but it's important for you to get, in terms of your maneuvering in the conversation, it's important for you to get a commitment to that first question before you go to the next issue. Timothy, mm. will she be—is a pastor, a female pastor, functioning as an elder? That's a yes or no question. If mm. no, then that means, oh, so there must be other elders over her. Is that correct? Mm. Is that right? That are in charge of her, and they're the ones who make decisions about the church, ultimate decisions about the church, not the so-called lead pastor who is a woman. Okay? okay. Now, but but I don't think he's going to say that, because if if she's the one that is subject to a group of elders that she is not a part of, then what does it mean to call her the lead pastor? Right. That's true. She's not leading. She's following. Okay. Now, that could mean, well, the preeminent one, there's others that are under her or whatever. She's like the president, whatever. So I'm the president of Stand to Reason, but I'm not—but I'm not—I am subject to a governing board. That's what the law requires anyway. And so you want to ask him whether that's the case. Now, if she is actually functioning as an elder, then what do you do with First Timothy 3? where it seems to identify elders as men. See what he says. I don't know what he's going to say. But that's about all you can do at this point, um, Jacob. I don't think you should make a federal case out of it. I don't think that's going to be productive, you know. Um, But, uh, I mean, you might, might, it might, this along with maybe there's other things, too, that might collectively make you want to reconsider where you go to church. I don't know. Now, um, just two other things really quick. Thank you so much for that, Greg. That was just like, I see, I called it. I said you were going to knock it out of the park. What would you do? (laughs) Uh, But, okay, so he's been in the ministry now for for quite a bit of time, right? Close to four years. How many many years? 
close to 40 years. Okay. Um, I have felt like the general view is lining up with what, what you've said. I, I don't know in all instances, but that's kind of the general... Um, I, I, I've honestly never heard someone explain in the way you have, so that was just awesome. Okay. But I'm curious why, you know, I, I know him to be so, like, faithful, I guess, to Jesus and to be, to be in the Word. I just, I'm just, I don't know why maybe he would interpret it that way. I don't know then. either, and that's why it's fair to ask. And then you could ask. Okay. Look, people have all kinds of different reasons for making the decisions they do. A lot of times they're—and I'm not speaking of your pastor, I'm just talking in general—a lot of times they're deeply influenced by the culture, and therefore what they try to do is they try to read into a text a uh, an exception or uh, a cultural circumstance that doesn't really apply, because they are they are rather convinced by the culture or some rationale in the culture to take this text in a different way. So now, um, uh, that I'm, might that might be that might be what's going on behind there. Now he might have an answer. He said, "Well, this doesn't apply to men. This doesn't say just men." Well, wait a minute. It says men, husband of one wife and a man who manages his own household well. So how would you uh, and uh, let him talk and let him see how he does that? But a lot of times, you know, I'm going to be thinking if he gives me the, what I think is the wrong answer, I'm going to, I'm, I'm in my mind, I'm going to be wondering, well, look at why would he say that in light of what seems to be rather clear in this text? And then, you know, then it's anybody's guess unless you get a clearer idea. There are people who used to believe that homosexuality was wrong in the Bible, and then they're all of a sudden in favor of homosexuality. Really? Why would you do that? And then you learn out, well, they find out that one of their children is gay. So now you can see how some external circumstances can influence the way they read a text. I can't say for your ta- your pastor. A lot of people nowadays don't think this is relevant. You have whole denominations that just ignore this. Or they, they oh, that was for that period of time and it doesn't apply now. Well, why would you say that? Why would anybody... <clears throat> limit this, how much of the New Testament is just for that time and not for now, you know? Now, sometimes uh-huh. you're going to have a very good textual reason to make that point or that distinction with that particular requirement, but m- much of the time you're not. It's just a way of enforcing modern sensibilities into a text that doesn't teach that. It teaches something else. So that's something to watch for, you know? And um, again, I'm not going to know I won't know unless I heard him say it, and same thing with you. But you uh-huh. want to be real careful that you're going with your hat in your hand, so to speak. You're not going uh-huh. to, you know, tell them the way things are, but you are yeah. curious what his rationale is. He answers, and I've done this with my own pastor in the past, um, and I've pointed this out, something out, and I said, well, you don't answer to me. You know, you answer to you. That's your decision, but I want to offer you I'm curious what you think of the passage, or offer some thoughts, and then I let him decide. And um, and I think that should be your attitude, too. Just say, well, how do you, in light of this other conversation, what do you make of First Timothy 3, if you think that this a female pastor, head pastor, is going to function as an elder? What do you mm-hmm. make? And then see what he says. You might ask some more clarification questions. 
um, I don't know, but uh, but don't like go after him because right, prob- right. he's probably if he's n- if he if he comes up with justifications that you think are kind of weak, which you know I wouldn't be surprised if he did come up with justifications uh-huh. that were weak. Then you just have to decide: Can I live with this pastor in this church where I've been, even though he's promoting the idea of a woman being a pastor somewhere else, a lead pastor, or not. Mm-hmm. If this is the only kind of outlier and everything else seems good, well, you know, and you have a good place in that community, I'd just stick with it. But okay. uh, you might end up seeing other things that trouble you, and that might be a signal that he's kind of slowly going off the rails and following culture rather than following Scripture. But that's that's going to be your call. Okay. Okay, that's great. All right, um, Jacob. And if you want to, I know you had another question about. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I'm tight on time here. In fact, there goes that's my music. Fine. So uh, we'll talk to you another time. All right, Jake. All right, I'll call again next time. Thank uh, you so much. All right, buddy. Take care. Okay, friends. There's my music. Greg Kokel here for Stand a Reason. Give him heaven. All right. Bye bye now. <laughs> 